0: Been very excited about the developments in gravitational wave astrophysics lately. So I remember when I was a student, and I would listen to Kip Thorne give these lectures about the upcoming gravitational wave observatories. They were still just an idea; they hadn't been built. They weren't built until 2000, the first generation of machines. But the idea was to measure space-time itself, to measure space-time ringing. It was unlike anything that ever been that had ever been tried before. Um, if you think about what we know about the universe, almost everything we know about the universe comes to us from light. We have telescopes and satellites and observatories, and they all collect different kinds of light. So we have this kind of silent movie of the universe, this kind of um, like snapshots, these frozen snapshots that we take in we we look deeper into space and we can see further back in time so we have this kind of history of the universe in these frozen snapshots and um, and that's extraordinary but this was different um, this ambition was going to be uh, not collecting light at all not taking pictures of the sky but actually recording the ringing drum of space-time and at the time the that Kip would first start talking about it, drumming up kind of enthusiasm in the community. It was sort of, I think, you know, the early days before my days, extremely slow going. There was a lot of negativity about the ambition. People didn't understand if there would ever be anything cataclysmic enough in the universe to actually ring space time loud enough. So the idea is like this. This is My favorite example is black holes. So you imagine two black holes collide. And uh, we, we know the sort of standard lore that deep concentrations of masses like black holes curve space and time around them. That when we fall towards the Earth and we fall towards a black hole, what we're really doing is falling along the natural curve in space-time imprinted from this massive object. So if you think about black holes orbiting each other, those curves have to move and adjust because the black hole's moving. And they can't move faster than the speed of light because that would violate uh, the speed limit that we know exists, the cosmic speed limit, that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, no information, not even information about space and time. So these waves in the shape of space-time start to readjust around the moving black holes. And they travel outward at the speed of light, and those are the gravitational waves. So their their effect is to squeeze and stretch space. If you were floating near these black holes, um, you would literally be squeezed and stretched. And if you were close enough, you would you would feel the difference between the squeezing and stretching on your face or your feet. And um, we've even conjectured that your eardrum could ring in response, like a resonant membrane, so that you would literally hear the wave, technically hear it, even in the absence of a medium like air. Even though we think that empty space is, is silent, in these circumstances, you would actually hear the black holes collide, but you wouldn't see them. It would happen in complete darkness. So the two black holes would be completely dark, and, uh, and your only evidence of their collision would be to hear the space-time ringing. Now, at the time that uh, people like Kip Thorne and Ray Weiss uh, were first kind of dreaming up these machines to detect this, um, people weren't even sure black holes were real. They, the black holes, as an astrophysical um, object, were still contentious. People didn't know if nature made black holes. And also people were still arguing about whether these, these waves themselves were real. It's pretty tricky business. It's pretty tough stuff. People knew that black holes were a mathematical possibility, and Einstein knew this in 1916. As soon as he writes down the general theory of relativity, uh, Carl Schwarzschild, from the trenches, reading the proceedings about general relativity, writes down the solution that we now know as the black hole. Um, and he sends it to Einstein. Einstein immediately accepts that it's a correct solution. He just doesn't think nature's gonna allow this to happen. He just doesn't think there's any way you're gonna crush matter dense enough for this to happen. Um, and this goes on for a very long time. Oppenheimer actually, interestingly enough, was, did some of the most important work on discovering black holes. He was thinking about nuclear physics and nuclear matter. And uh, with some of his students under idealized conditions, they came to the conclusion that matter could not actually resist collapse if a star were to die and fall under its own weight, that it would necessarily form a black hole. And Johnny Wheeler, who was like the granddaddy of relativity, who, who um, he trained entire generations of relativists, including Kip Thorne and people like Richard Feynman, um, really thought Oppenheimer was wrong and and kind of offended him by critiquing his work. Now Wheeler was also deeply invested in nuclear physics. He worked very hard on the bomb project. He was part of designing the plutonium reactors to separate plutonium, the first separation facilities, in um, had for Washington, which by coincidence is now the site of the LIGO observatory, which is the gravitational wave observatory. Um, but Wheeler was Uh, very adamant about building a nuclear bomb, very deeply invested in this nuclear physics, and then uh, realized he could use the same thinking to answer this question about whether or not stars would form black holes after they collapsed. And he comes to the conclusion, um, indeed, that they do, and he sort of gives this, lecture, he bounds onto stage where he's describing what he, you know, the end state of gravitational collapse and um, interestingly Oppenheimer was there, but I guess there was some bad feeling between Oppenheimer and Wheeler and, um, and Oppenheimer wouldn't enter the auditorium, he sat outside, the story is, talking among friends and, um, and uh, just seemed to not be interested anymore, either in the question or in Wheeler's resolution. Right. The term black hole wasn't actually coined until after Oppenheimer died, shortly after Oppenheimer died. Wheeler again, I don't know if it was a radio, I heard the story that this was this happened in a seminar on Broadway up by Columbia, above Tom's Restaurant. <laughs> um, that Wheeler was visiting Goddard uh, Uh, Space Center there and um, the NASA Goddard Center there and that he was giving this seminar and he kept saying end state of complete gravitational collapse. He kept saying this incredibly unwieldy phrase and he was tiring of saying this and somebody from the audience apparently shouts, how about black hole? (laughs) And uh, and then Wheeler just imposes the term on the community, just begins using it in his fashion. He was famous for his Wheelerisms. Um, So people knew that black holes uh, theoretically were were very likely by the late 60s. But there was no evidence for them, or not evidence that people recognized until later. So um, so you have to understand that while they began this campaign, late 60s, early 70s, to measure space-time ringing, to literally record the sounds of space-time, they were doing so without a guarantee that that the astrophysics was even going to provide sources. Nature, they weren't sure nature would even provide sources. So it was um, extremely ambitious and daring thing to not only invest in, but to invest in for 50 years. Right? Even though later people start to acknowledge black holes exist, that they collide, that they'll ring space-time, stars explode, that would ring space-time. Uh, neutron stars, which are dead stars, still quite make it to become black holes, can ring space-time uh, with their imperfections like scraping and creating waves and the shape around them if there's a little mountain, a little tiny, tiny little mountain. Um, nobody knew if they were populous enough that maybe it only happens once every hundred years that we would see such a thing. So we're building this instrument and, and we could just be sitting there silently listening. It, it seemed um, insane to people and um, And I think that's why it's one of these really remarkable scientific stories where just the drive, I I call it a climbing Mount Everest story more than anything else, just the drive and the ambition was so powerful that they just couldn't turn away. They just couldn't stop, really. And Ray just describes building these little prototypes in in like the Plywood Palace uh, um, at MIT, which was a makeshift structure that was thrown up after the war, during the war, um, to try to, to, to get scientists and engineers to work on things like radar and... Um, and uh, it was this ramshackle structure that was half falling apart, but somehow the shoddiness of the structure allowed them to do things <laughs> that they couldn't do in a normal building. They were punching holes in ceilings, they were breaking through walls, they were tapping pipes overhead. and. And they just started these very creative, uh, free projects where they weren't thinking about immediacy of outcome. And if you think about Ray's first prototype of the LIGO machine, which is the instrument that just recently succeeded in making uh, the first detection of gravitational waves, as announced on February 11th, remarkably, remarkably exciting discovery. Um, I'll tell you that. Really this idea of building a machine to record the skies uh, starts in a few places. But Ray Weiss really makes a very important first step. He kind of dreams up this instrument which would which would sort of bob on the wave of a changing space-time and record the shape of it. It's almost like a musical instrument in some sense, recording the modulating shape of a drum and then playing it back to us as sound. And he thinks of it just as, he calls it a haiku. It's just like a crazy idea he starts to think about. And um, and you know, Ray says that the big event comes, one of the big events comes when he meets Kip Thorne. So Kip Thorne is a very theoretical astrophysicist and a real dreamer. And um, already at very young age, a famous Caltech professor, um, a relativist, and he and Kip sort of, uh, Kip and Ray come together and start to discuss the realities of, of bringing an experimental ambition like this to Caltech. And then it starts to grow. Then they hire Ron Drever uh, at Caltech. Ron is a Scottish physicist from a very different culture, uh, scientific culture and, and also personal culture, Um, but an ingenious dreamer also of of machines, a real great experimentalist. And and the three of them are really the original architects of this instrument. And um, it's over decades from the first time Ray sort of dreams it up uh, is the late 60s, early 70s. It's not until uh, 2000 that the machines are actually built and in that time you really have Kip making the scientific case, you have Ray really doing everything he can to keep this alive for that many decades, and you have Ron Drever uh, with this ingenious approach to experimental physics um, doing the design. Um, but they all really give everything they have to this campaign. It really takes, it takes the, a good part of their lives and their, their careers to do this. And there's no guarantee of success. I love Ray said to me, um, he said, I started life with one ambition, to make music easier to hear. <laughs> and uh, when he was a kid, he would build hi-fis, and he wanted to make music easier to hear. And I think that there's this direct relationship to what was his ultimate scientific contribution, which was to build this, build this machine to record the skies, um, record the sounds of space time. It, like any campaign to conquer nature, I mean, bodies are left along the side of the road at some point. It, it, it there were real moments of strife and real moments that the whole project would collapse, uh, where it was possible that the whole project would collapse, and um, and there were many people who came along the way and came and went. You know, Robbie. Vogt did a really important job as one of the first directors, but ultimately was fired, and um, Barry Barish came in and considered one of the finest um, leaders of big projects in in the world, if not the finest, Um, and saved the project at a really crucial moment, and um, Ron Drever was eventually fired from the project. So there was a lot of drama, um, which not everybody likes to talk about. A lot of people will refuse to discuss it and and in the Caltech archives it's still some of it is still sealed um, and uh, and inaccessible but ultimately the the project survived and I, I think what's amazing is the first generation of machines was technologically incredibly successful so the first prototypes that people were working on were 1.5 1.5 meters long, with two mirrors suspended at either end, and just measuring the distance between the mirrors basically. If the mirrors bob on the wave, it can tell that the mirrors have bobbed on the wave and it records the shape of the ringing. Uh, technological feat accomplished, but nothing, no detections. And uh, people start to get a little nervous, so they they always imagined that there would have to be a second generation of advanced machines, but you, you know this is already decades into it, and now it's another 15-year project to uh, develop the advanced machines, install the components, get the machine working. And um, when I would hang around in, uh, on the LIGO sites, um, go to the facilities, everyone told me there's gonna be no detections until 2018. No way, no detections. Um, one of the experimentalists, Rana, apparently always said, nope, we're about to detect something, but he said he always, he always says that. He's just sort of eternally optimistic. He has to say that. But um, the amazing thing was the first run, the first science run ever of the advanced machine was scheduled for September 14th at 8 a.m. Uh, 2015, and um, it had to be postponed for a week because the machines were ready, but the algorithms to analyze the data and to trigger partners, which had telescopes that would point in the same direction, a kind of network of partners, um, those algorithms weren't fully operational. They weren't fully ready. And uh, so they were still doing an engineering run on September 14th. And during an engineering run, you do whatever you want to the machine. You disrupt it, you run tests, you you knock it, you're just playing around. You're just still doing um, systems tests. And Ray says he was there that weekend, noodling with radio interference, and he says, luckily my wife told me I had to come home. (laughs) So he puts down his tools, he goes home. He was in Louisiana at that site. And apparently, um, students were still banging on the machine until like one or two in the morning. Um, And in Washington State, where the other machine is, same thing, people were still running tests and disturbing the machine, I guess, about within the space of less than an hour. Everyone puts down their tools and goes home. The machines are locked in observing mode, but it's an engineering run, Uh, it's not a science run, and within an hour from the southern hemisphere comes a gravitational wave from the collision of two black holes, 1.4 billion light years away, uh, about, hits Louisiana, rings the machines at about 4.50 a.m. 10 milliseconds later, it skims across the continent and rings the Hanford site. And, um, and everyone's asleep, and the trigger pipelines aren't fully automated yet, but they do make a note. The automated uh, uh, analysis of the data makes a note that there was an event at both machines. So people wake up in Europe, and they see that there's a candidate event. Now this happens from time to time. There are candidate events, and they get thrown away. But there's some chatter about this, this event. And, um, and so people start to wake up at the different sites going into work and there's just a lot of chatter. And um, everyone thought it was what's called a blind injection. So a blind injection is when um, fake data is intentionally injected into the instrument to simulate uh, detection, just to test operations. But it's blind in that nobody knows that it's happened, so that they do a serious job on analyzing it and they really can can do a hard test of the, um, the machine and the analysis. And uh, at one point, um, one of the experimentalists, Mike Landry, from Hanford, Washington, says to one of the people responsible for the blind injections, uh, this is 8.30 in the morning, 8.30 that morning, did you test the blind injections? Did you test injections of any type? Did you, uh, are we in a phase of injecting? Um, There's only certain questions that they're allowed to answer, but the answer was no to all the questions. And Mike suddenly realizes that this incredibly clear signal that is clearly louder than the noise that looks just like Um, A collision, what you would expect from from the sound of a collision, is not a drill. And I think the excitement sort of slowly builds as they spend the next couple of months analyzing the data. I got a call mid-December, well not a call, I got a message (laughs) mid-December from David Reitze, the director, and from Kip and from Ray, um, uh, that said confidential communication from LIGO and um, uh, with the news. And I was just totally floored. I, I, at first, I read Confidential Communication, and I, I couldn't read on. <laughs> I was too excited. And then the immediately, we want to let you know, we've detected the collision of two about 30 solar mass black holes. Um, it's definitive, we've analyzed it for three months. It's the first direct detection of um, not only two black holes, but of a gravitational wave. And um, and then they told me not to tell anybody. <laughs> I love that not only did the detection come early, not in 2018, but almost exactly 100 years after Einstein first proposed the theory of general relativity. It came early, so Ray and Kip and um, Ron Drever, these guys didn't have to suffer anymore. They, they, they got this great satisfaction. Um of this detection, and the fact that it was black holes is huge. Ray kept saying to me, I gotta tell you, if we don't detect black holes, this thing is a failure. It was a very bold thing to say before it succeeded. Um, he won, he, we want pure space-time coalescence, he said. And, um, and if we don't get that, we've led this country down a garden path. And he really stuck his neck out saying that. And um, the fact that it was the first, not three or four years into LIGO operating, advanced LIGO operating, but it just, it just uh, rang the machines in this beautiful um, and unexpected way, I just think was just incredibly f- fortuitous and, and, and just a real gift. Um, so I was very excited for them. Kip said um, he had a moment of profound satisfaction. <laughs> He was very, very reserved. Einstein, right after 2015, in a correspondence with Schwarzschild, who wrote down the black hole solution, even though it wasn't called that yet, um, starts to talk about gravitational waves right away. He calls it his top priority, gravitational waves. It's, it's, this, it's this deep part of the theory. Will, will these waves in space-time carry energy away? And, and uh, he doesn't imagine at all that they would be detectable. Um, so if you figure a hundred years later, there's this sort of final piece in the puzzle in some sense. It's deeply fundamental to understanding curved space-time. gravitational waves. They're, they're deeply fundamental to the whole business um, in a way that uh, maybe even Einstein didn't fully appreciate. In some sense, gravitational waves, is why we know that the sun is there, right? So the sun moves or settles down, and these waves propagate out from the sun and eventually create the curved space-time around the sun where we stably fall along our orbit. And we are slowly emitting gravitational waves ourselves and slowly falling into the sun. Um, barring other solar system influences, very slowly though it takes a very, very long time. So this is fundamental to how gravity in some sense is communicated across the universe. It's absolutely at the core of the theory. So obviously on the centenary, which is what everyone was aiming for, to have confirmed this is very thrilling. On the other hand, everyone expected this was true. There was indirect evidence that gravitational waves existed. We see things spiraling into other things. We famously see a pulsar, which is um, a neutron star with like a lighthouse beacon on it. And we see this pulsar falling into its companion ever so slowly, exactly as predicted by the energy loss to gravitational waves. And so nobody's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Um, in that sense, it's not quite like the Higgs, where there, maybe it really wasn't there, and we were way off base. Um, but what is more exciting is what we can do in terms of astronomy with the Gravitational Wave uh, Observatory. I think the challenge moving forward after this first detection is for the gravitational wave observatories to really start to do astronomy in the conventional sense, the way a radio telescope um, is accumulating astronomical information all the time. Tons of scientists work on the data and study the data from radio telescopes, and we're learning things that, I don't know, maybe the general public won't be as excited about with some of these instruments. How much hydrogen is there or... Um, How much dust is there between us and quasars? But all of this stuff contributes to this extraordinary story we end up telling about the universe, which is that it was born 14 billion years ago and that it was born with nothing, or not much, rather, in it and that it slowly evolved to have stars and galaxies and heavy elements and planets and people who build these things to reconstruct that whole history. Um, so the challenge for LIGO will be to start to discover things that we absolutely could not have discovered any other way. Um, the black hole-black hole, um, black hole, black hole collision is a step because we can't see two dark black holes any other way. Um, They, by definition, are dark, they don't emit light or reflect light, um, unless they're cannibalizing another star or tearing down a lot of material. So we do see that. We see them destroying things around them. But if there's two bare black holes with no debris, then they're dark, truly. And so this is already a discovery that couldn't be made um, solely with a telescope. And so the hope moving forward is that there will be this rich and sort of profitable era of accumulating information about the cosmos. When, um, when Kip started talking about uh, potential sources in the early days and um, even before 2000, um, he would talk about the really wild stuff too, stuff we've never thought about. I mean, what else could be out there that we've we know nothing about. Um, we know that there are really dark components to the universe. There's dark matter, there's dark energy, which are just proxies for things that we can't see with telescopes. So we already know there are things that we can only detect indirectly from their effect on the space and time around them. And, um, and it would be thrilling if there was even more out there that we, we hadn't uh, yet foreseen. Well, the, the dark matter and the dark energy are not light interacting by definition. So, with our telescopes, they're not sending light our way, they're not scattering light our way. Um, we really have to see them indirectly. We, we weigh the universe in some sense by looking at the effect on space time. So, dark energy is a very specific effect on space time, causing it to grow at an accelerated rate, getting faster and faster, and that's what we measure and we deduce how much dark energy there is, but we actually have no idea what it is. <laughs> we, we, there's no, I mean, there's theories out there. So, so when, when I'm not working on black holes, I do uh, dream about stuff like this, think about stuff like this. We, we wonder if there are extra spatial dimensions and they're dark, could they trap a kind of quantum energy that would explain the dark energy? Um, and I think that's a really interesting, viable idea. Maybe we're already seeing extra dimensions in the dark energy, but we're a really long way from determining that experimentally. Um, Dark matter, similarly, we know is heavy like regular matter, but otherwise doesn't interact with light. That's less shocking. We know some things that don't interact with light. Neutrinos are a kind of particle that have mass that don't interact with light very much. Technically they're a form of dark matter, Um, but we don't know what this particular kind of dark matter is. So we weigh it by looking at galaxies, how heavy they are. And we can tell how heavy they are by the effect it has on space-time around it and uh, bending the path of light from other distant galaxies or, um, or keeping stars in orbit, and, um, and so we know it's there. And it would be interesting if in the gravitational wave experiments we would have some direct way of hearing things that we can't see. It's hard to know how dark matter or dark energy might do that, but, um, but maybe there are other things out there, and, uh, and I, th- I think that might sound wild to people, but if you think about the first time people were using telescopes, nobody dreamt of quasars or jets a million light years across, or even entire galaxies for that matter. Nobody imagined entire galaxies. Um, So the idea that by doing something completely different uh, that we would discover wildly unknown stuff is actually a reasonable idea. It's very reasonable based on past experience. And that's why people talk about the new window, that this is really a totally new window on the universe. So maybe we're just like in the early phases of the telescope We're just starting to pick up stuff that we know about. And then, I mean, what would be most exciting is um, if we start recording things or unambiguous sounds from space and we have no idea what they are. I think everybody would love that. So I, I, I think I was first very interested in the early universe, the Big Bang. That's really the question, I think, that gets a lot of us to start to go down this road of wanting um i I think I was thinking about the Big Bang and the early universe long before I ever considered science. i don 't even think I recognized it as scientific thinking i wasn't I was midway through college before I discovered physics, <laughs> so um, I came quite late to the realization that this was something a person could do, and that math was the was not only the language but it was this uh this unbelievable way into the sort of secret code. Um, So, but I think thinking about space-time, you're naturally eventually led to black holes. Black holes are very special objects. So I think all the, I got very into the whole space-time relativity thinking. It's my favorite domain. Um, I love teaching it, I love thinking about it, I love still doing research um, that's very formal relativity. And black holes are special because they're not actually things. People often will say something like, oh, a black hole is an incredibly dense crush of matter. That's really not true. That's how they're informed, but that's not what the black hole is. So if I take a star, and I turn off its nuclear fuel at the end of its life, and it has no more pressure to keep it aloft, it starts to collapse under its own weight. And it's true, that makes an incredibly dense crush of matter. And the whole argument was, is it, Is a gravitational force strong enough to push past quantum forces and crush it all the way? But once that matter crushes to the point that the space-time around it is so strongly curved that not even light can escape, once that happens, that's the formation of what we call the event horizon or the shadow of the black hole. Once that happens, that crush of matter continues to fall. It's gone. It's not sitting there at the event horizon. It continues to fall to the center and then, honestly, we don't really know what happens to it. But what we know is it's not sitting there at the edge of the shadow. So what we call the black hole is really a place. It's a region where space-time is so strongly curved that there's a shadow cast and not even light can escape. But if you were to fall across that line, there's nothing there. There's no matter from the star that formed it, nor could you stay there once you cross. Once you cross, you're forced to fall further forward towards the center of the singularity, which may or may not really exist, but at least you're forced towards that area, Um, as surely as you're forced forward in time. It's just you can't not do it. Well, so the singularity is definitely in Einstein's theory. There's a prediction that there will be an infinite region of curvature and an infinitely um, uh, strong area of s- where space-time is almost literally a, like a cut in space-time. And that's kind of catastrophic. Nobody thinks that if you include quantum forces that, well, I don't know, maybe some people think it. But a lot of people think that quantum forces will somehow amend that in some very, very interesting way. But that's the final, final story. This, the rest of this, you know, falling towards the center is all very solid. So, um, so the point is, a black hole—it's not really a thing. It's like a place, and that makes it very special. It's—it's it's like a fundamental object in gravity. Uh, it's like a fundamental particle of gravity in some sense, and that all black holes of a certain mass and a certain electric charge and a certain spin. Are absolutely identical to all others with those same properties. Identical, and um, and in that sense, it's really like a fundamental object, and it makes them very special. So they're special, not only in terms of their space-time, but they provide a terrain to study uh, the deepest theories of the universe: gravity and quantum theory coming together, and this is where people like Lenny Susskind and Stephen Hawking um, have made these very interesting uh, contributions and Roger Penrose and all these interesting people, they're thinking about the black hole not as the dead state of a star, but just as a fundamental uh, terrain to study what the laws of physics, the ultimate laws of physics are, even beyond Einstein's theory, and even beyond quantum mechanics. And, and it continues to be incredibly productive as a, um, as a setting for that. So Hawking's amazing observation was that even though not even light can escape from a black hole, it finds this very clever way to evaporate, and it does this by stealing quantum uh, fluctuations from empty space. It sort of steals some and releases some, and in this very tricky way, the black hole evaporates. Um, and this caused not only excitement because it was a fascinating idea, but a kind of crisis because if the black hole evaporates, but still doesn't let anything out. What did happen to all that matter that fell in when it originally formed a star, let's say? Where does it go? And and Hawking kind of said, it's just gone. It's just gone, it's obliterated. And people like Lenny Susskind said, that's not tolerable because that means that something, information is being lost from the universe and that's not tolerable because everything we understand about the laws of physics has to do with tracking information. And if information can suddenly be obliterated, then in some sense we don't have laws of physics. So it was a big crisis. And this has been going on since the seventies as well. And the debate still, is still pretty interesting. <laughs> because black holes are really like fundamental objects, it means we should be able to create them in, by smashing atoms together, just like we create electrons or the Higgs particle. Mm-hmm. If I smash particles together and they have enough energy that I can make something heavy, I should be able to also make a little black hole, a little tiny microscopic black hole, so that stellar collapse is not the only way to make a black hole. Um, the question is really, at what energies would you achieve, uh, what energies are high enough to make a black hole. And right now we think that the energies are um, about 10 billion times higher than uh, the Large Hadron Collider can reach. So really high. (laughs) So the Large Hadron Collider is probing a fraction of a second after the Big Bang and it's still not high enough energy. Um, other people thought, well, maybe if there are extra spatial dimensions and there's our cosmology is a little bit different than we think, maybe that scale's much much lower. Maybe we can make black holes at the LHC. So, in truth, they look for black holes in the collisions of uh, of, of the protons. Um, so far, none have been seen. And you know, of course, there was a scare that the black holes would destroy the universe uh, if we were to make them, <laughs> which would have been unfortunate. But um, But black holes evaporate, as Hawking said, and so these little microscopic black holes actually evaporate extremely quickly. They vaporize, basically. And uh, the bigger the black hole, the slower the evaporation. The smaller the black hole, the quicker. So they basically just explode or vaporize. So there was no theoretical expectation that you can make a stable black hole that would destroy the universe. Um, People don't like the kinds of statistics physicists deal with, because nobody would say it's... A hundred percent impossible. They would just say it's very, very, very unlikely, <laughs> which made some people anxious. Um, even before Ray and Kip and Ron got interested in this program to build a gravity observatory like this, there was this one lone pioneer, Joe Weber, who um, in the '60s built a very different kind of instrument, much cheaper and much more immediate. It's called a Weber bar. It was like an aluminum cylinder, kind of a guitar string in a sense, or part of a tuning fork. And the idea was that when a gravitational wave struck it, it would resonate like a tuning fork, and that you could measure the resonant vibrations and thereby detect the gravitational wave. Um, Joe Weber became instantly one of the most famous scientists in the world because he um, claimed a discovery, evidence for gravitational waves, and it caused this incredible excitement. I, I, um, I think. In this sense, he absolutely launched the field. He was the pioneer who started this whole business. And people all over the world started building Weber Bars. Unfortunately, nobody else heard a thing. And so after a few years, um, things turn against Weber very badly, very aggressively, and he spends the next 25 years defending himself, really, or 30 years. trying to defend his claims, but he he falls into disrepute. And I think that that created a kind of cloud over the initial LIGO um, inventors. They were working not only against the the possibility that nature wouldn't provide any sources, but against community opinion. Community opinion was very much soured. Um, But I feel that Joe Weber deserves really great credit for being very ingenious and um, and, uh, and visionary, and I think that, um, that now, if you look at the LIGO papers, they talk about Joe in the opening paragraphs um, as the pioneer who started the field, and I, and I think that's really um, uh, a great respect to pay to him. So I do a lot of this dreamy stuff about the Big Bang or extra spatial dimensions and who knows in my lifetime if that stuff will ever be resolved. That's why I like to spend time on black holes. For me that's being really concrete, you know, (laughs) down to earth. And uh, We want to know, we have some really good ideas about, even though I've harped on about how dark black holes are, um, about black holes lighting up in the final fraction of a second before they swallow either another black hole or a neutron star um, that you can actually make a kind of electronic circuit like a giant astrophysical electronic circuit and uh, we're pretty excited about this so we've been making a lot of predictions and hoping uh, telescopes will confirm well so my research world is a pretty small group of uh, scientists that I work with um, and uh, I work at Barnard and at Columbia, and um, with a lot of research scientists at Columbia. And uh, uh, sorry, I have postdocs like Sean McWilliams, who's now a professor, or Dan Durazio, who is one of my students, um, Gabe Perez-Giz, Rebecca Grossman, uh, a few students that have gotten PhDs and moved on. Um, and we, and also sometimes. Uh, begin to collaborate with faculty. Honestly, faculty so busy and we're all pursuing our own ideas. Sometimes that's the hardest <laughs> um, to work with other professors. Uh, and it's really um, this sort of beautiful way of operating. We, we operate very mathematically on my side. Um, it, it really is proof-driven and, and, and math-driven. And, uh, and we don't proceed until we have a calculation that we think is very convincing and where we feel we understand all the steps and um, and we can solve a problem analytically. And that's not how everybody operates. So there's a collaboration that gets handed off where there are people who build very complex computer simulations and they can, in some sense, do experiments just on the computer. And we can't really do that with, with our mathematical tools. So we, in some ways, there's a handoff where um, where there's numerical experiments and now of course with the actual uh, detectors um, there's a whole relationship and it all feeds into into each thing feeds into the other and it's a kind of ecosystem a scientific ecosystem.